I don't know if I, I might be an unfamiliar face to some of you. My name is Dan Hutchins. I'm an associate minister here. And if I am an unfamiliar face, um, I would definitely love to get to know you and, and meet you after, after the service. If, if you specifically have um, youth age students or if you're a college or young singles and I don't know you, I would, I would specifically love to get to know you. Um, but if you're not specifically within that category of people, I would definitely love to get to know you as well. And so um, didn't want to exclude anybody, right? So... Um, well, uh, I just want to be upfront before we get started with where I'm going this morning. And I'm actually, it would make sense for me to give these four things at the end, but I'm, I'm going to give them to you at the beginning and at the end, because I want your mind to just start going with me into Nehemiah and just to start thinking about what I'm thinking about and what, and what I'm seeing in the passage. And so, um, like I would say primarily, like the big point um, that really, anytime we get together and talk about God, really the desire for me um, and for you is that we would walk out of here knowing God better. And so if there's one just big hope that, I mean, you're created to know God in a deeper way. And so if you don't know him, um, my, my prayer and my hope is that you would come to know him. And that if you do know him, that we would be challenged to walk in a deeper, um, just a greater sense of his reality. And so that would be just my big hope. And then um, secondly, I, I, I want us to value the gospel as it should be valued in our life. And so like I, I hope through, through today and just through your life that valuing the gospel um, compared to all things is something that becomes a reality for you. Um, and, then, and then also part of the gospel, there, there's many things that happen um, when we believe in the gospel and start thinking through the gospel. But one of the things that happens to people is that we begin to see through the gospel lenses and we begin to see the world as God sees it. And God sees the world as a very, with, with a lot of brokenness. Like there's something that's gone wrong in the world that's created, that's like sin has corrupted and defiled the world. And so I, I want us to see and to feel brokenness for the world to feel broke. That's one of the, just one of the things that transpires as a result of the gospel. And so to value the gospel and not be broken over the gospel is not gospel logic. And so it's logical for us to move into and to see our surroundings and just our, our people and our neighborhoods and our jobs with, with just a deep brokenness. And we'll get into that here in just a minute. And um, lastly, that you would be an active agent. Um, it is definitely not gospel logic for us to feel brokenness over something and to not be right in the game, being active and just and, and being proactive in, in our call. And so um, that's where I'm going. Uh, let me pray over our time again, and then we'll, uh, we'll just get right into Nehemiah. God, help us um, just to, to have a deeper sense of your reality in our lives. And God, that, that your word would um, just be so alive this morning. And, and God, I pray for the hearers and for myself that, um, that, we, would, that we would desire to know you. Because that's what we're created to be. Um, that we are people created to walk in fellowship with God. And God, there is great joy in knowing you. And so I pray for our people here. I pray for myself um, that, our, that our deepest joy in life would be found when we walk in, in fellowship with you and um, when we're repenting of sin and walking with you. And so, Father, for those, if there's people in here that don't know you, I just pray specifically for them um, that, that you would, what Ephesians says, to open up the eyes of our hearts to know you. And God, more than anything, that you would be made famous this morning. Um, that's our prayer. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1. Um, a couple of summers ago, I got my first invitation to go um, mountain biking. And it was actually by 
uh, Pastor Rodney was my first invitation to go mountain biking. And I grew up um, kind of, you know, I have the athletic background in my background. So I did, you know, sports in high school. I mean, it wasn't a great career. I mean, I'm not like in college playing football or anything like that. But, um, you know, there, there's definitely a, an athletic background where I did, you know, baseball growing up and basketball and football growing up. And so when someone asked me, if you want to go mountain biking, my, my default response is, well, of course I can go mountain biking. It's easy. You know, I played football and basketball. I can handle a mountain, no problem. And so I began to, I began to think this way, and, and Rodney also asked me if I had a mountain bike. And um, if you've never done mountain biking anymore, I don't even know if you remember this, but if you've never done mountain biking anymore, you just think your huffy is a mountain bike. You just naturally think that your, your fiery red huffy, it qualifies for a mountain bike. And it does not qualify for a mountain bike. It does not. If you have a little Murray or something like that, those are not legitimate mountain bikes. So I didn't know that at the time. So I was like, well, yeah, I've got a I've got a huffy. Of course I have a mountain bike. And so I'll just, pick up, I'll just pick up my bike when I go home next and bring it. And so the day finally came for us to go mountain biking. And I was meeting um, Rodney and I think Charlie, our drummer, was there actually. And, um, and I, I was, we were pumping up our tires before we started. And so I'm unloading my bike and I look over and their bikes look way different than my bikes. I mean, I, 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 am, I am starting to feel, you know, when you just feel really out of place and you're just like, I just look like an idiot right now. I start looking around and they've got like, you know, shock resistant technology on their bikes and they've got these cool looking wheels and they've got these really cool gears that are made for, I've got like fast, medium and slow on mine. And so, and so we begin to warm up and they're, you know, checking out their gears and stuff like, Dan, is your bike okay? I'm like, it's great, man. And so, um, and so I, so we, we sit there and I mean, it's crazy. I mean, there, there's some, I mean, they got some cool stuff. I mean, one guy brought a backpack with water in his backpack that kind of has a hose that comes to your mouth. So you're, he's just drinking water the whole time. I didn't even know that existed. It's like a squirt bottle. Like I got my squirt bottle, you know? And so, um, and so we, we started, um, we started mountain biking and I could tell you within one minute of mountain biking that it was probably something that I was never going to do again. And so, um, <laughs> So we started, I mean, we started going and I am dead last. I mean, I would come around a corner and Rodney and the three, the two, two other guys would be sitting there waiting on me. And like, I'm just in complete, I am dying on the mountain, just completely dying. And they're like, oh, okay, you ready? Oh, good dancer. Let's keep going. And I'm like, no, no, no. Y'all just had a break. Can, I need a break too. And so, um, <laughs> so I just got progressively more behind and more behind as our day went on. And, and so we got to a point, you know, I didn't know how long a mountain bike, I was thinking two, three miles. Our options were seven or 14. And so I was like, please seven. And so we, we actually had the seven, we went the seven mile route instead of the 14 mile route. And so I got halfway into the mountain biking, my first mountain biking experience. And um, I, I, it was real incline at the beginning and then it started declining a lot. And so I got to a specific part of the mountain that really began to decline and it got, it picked up a lot. I picked up a lot of speed really quickly and, um, which is not, was not good. You'll see why here in just one second. And so, um, so I pick up a lot of speed and I, I also notice, and there's no one around me right now. I mean, these guys, are, there's no telling how far they are. I mean, it's just me right now. So, um, so I'm, I'm going extremely fast on the mountain. I notice that the, the, the path begins to narrow a lot. I mean, like a really a lot. And so I'm freaking out, looking straight down at the path. And almost instantly I look up and there is a branch protruding into the path. And so like, I still can't quite figure out how what is about to happen to me didn't happen to the guys before me, but they weren't there. And so, um, and so this branch is protruding. So I try and dodge the branch and in so doing, the branch um, takes my arm completely off my bike. And so I have, I'm riding a bike with one hand and this hand is in, 
and straight down a hill. And so I moved this hand to the center. So I'm like trying to steer both of them at the same time, like just sitting here like this, you know, and, um, I, I hit the very end of the decline and went head first over my bike and landed right on my wrist. And so instantly my wrist starts swelling and, um, it was, there was a lot of pain and nobody around. And I was really lonely right then and there, really lonely, you know, when you're there and you're like, First of all, I'm kind of glad that no one just saw that, but I kind of wish someone was here to help me. And so, and the, the worst thing that happened is my, my wheel to my bike was like a little wobbly. So for the rest of the ride, my, I can't hardly even drive my bike straight because my bike is wobbling. And so a um, couple, couple of life lessons I learned about myself that day. And it, that one of the glaring life, less, life lessons that I will take home forever is that I'm probably never going to go mountain biking again. <laughs> Um, and I'm, I'm probably not going to do anything that involves me ever riding on a bike for any, really any period. If, it, if, it's, if it's more than leisurely neighborhood riding, I'm probably not going to join you. And so, um, but I'm not going to do those things. And, and here's why, because I only work and vigorously pursue for things that are of value to me. If I don't value it, there's a good chance I'm not putting forth a lot of effort into it. And if I don't really deeply enjoy it and deeply ve- just have a great value for something, the, the chances of me striving for it and vigorously pursuing it and working for it and training for it are, are very, very slim. Because you only train for things that you value in life. I mean, you only really vigorously pursue things that are valuable to you. Like for me, I mean, I lifted weights four years in high school and gained six pounds I'm not ever lifting weights ever again. It's bottom line. And already I'm four months into marriage and Trish is like, I really kind of want you to lift weights. So I'm already like having to figure out my, how am I? And in light of last week's sermon, I'm like, maybe I actually need to start lifting weights or something. And so, but you, you're the same way. Like you only do things that are valuable to you. And so like for me, I don't, I don't know what's valuable to you, but you know, you, it might be your job. So you obviously invest energy and time in a job. And that's a good thing. It should be something that's of value to you. And it might be, you know, your family. Like I hope that you value your family. And um, if you're a husband or wife, you know, we've been talking about the roles of husbands and wives inside of marriage. So I hope that valuing being a good husband and a godly husband and a godly wife is valuable to you. But one of the things that's interesting to me about the scriptures and about the Bible and about really um, the authors of the Bible is, is when they compare everything else in the world, even the good things like work and jobs and family and hobbies and activities and talents, when they put those on one side of the, of the scale and then they think about the gospel and about God and about knowing God, there is not even a comparison. That knowing God and believing in the gospel and loving the gospel is so far more valuable to them than anything they can think of under the sun. And so like Paul in Philippians chapter three, he lists off all of these accolades that he went through. I mean, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was brilliant, smart. I mean, he had a Greek education and a Jewish education, which was almost completely uncommon back then. So he had both really smart guy and he did a lot of things. And when he gets to the very end of that passage, he says, when I compare the surpassing worth of knowing Christ to those things, I count all these things as lost compared to knowing Jesus. And then if you look at the writer of Ecclesiastes, he, Solomon, who had so much money, he didn't even know what to do with it. He built a forest. How do we know how do you build a forest? 
But he's got that much money where he can put together a plan to build a forest and then he builds mansions and he pursues all kinds of worldly things. And literally through 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes, he's basically saying, I tried this and it didn't fulfill me. I tried this and it didn't fulfill me. I tried work and it didn't fulfill me. I tried gaining worldly wisdom, didn't fulfill. I tried sexual pleasure, didn't fulfill. I, I tried all of it. And some of them are good things like working. I mean, that's a good thing. And so that's not necessarily, but he gets to the very end and says, there is one thing that matters to me now. And that's fearing God, knowing God, and being obedient to God. Those are the things. And he says, all is vanity when it comes to, when compared to knowing God and loving God, there is a intrinsic thing. They value knowing the gospel and loving the gospel above all things. Now I want to take it one step further because I don't think you can know God and know his gospel and not feel brokenness for the world. Like it's gospel logic that if you know God and have experienced God for yourself and then you value and know and understand the gospel to see people that don't know God or to see a world defiled and corrupted by sin naturally leads us into a broken life, into brokenness over how sin has affected the world. So are you broken over the things that God has broken over? Because I think that's a call on our lives. So let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1. I heard, a, I got a, a tweet this, this week from a pastor, a Twitter little thing in my, in, via text message. And he said that, um, I think it's so true, that there are many organizers in a church, but very few agonizers in a church. And listen, it's, we could do so many things well here and completely miss our primary reason for existing as a church. We could have an efficiently ran system, like a well-oiled machine, and even lose sight of the fact that our primary purpose is to breathe life and light and hope into a world that desperately needs it. That is primary There's a billion secondary issues, but primary issues is glorifying God by displaying the gospel to a world that is crying for something. So let's keep primary things primary. Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's go verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Hislev. That's like November, December. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And so let me just give you um, a couple of just historical background. That's what's going on. Um, this, this is actually the very last book in your Old Testament. Uh, chronologically, it's the very last book before we get, there's like a 400-year break between the Old and New Testament. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are like the very last. So we're in 445 BC. And about 60 years before now, um, the Israelites were drug out by Babylon into captivity. So about 60 years previous to Nehemiah, you have prophets like Jeremiah. And Jeremiah basically taught me, he was crying out to Israelites, to the Israelites saying, don't stop being idolaters. Stop being idolaters. God's going to raise up this northern kingdom to punish you. I mean, this is a prophecy by Jeremiah. Isaiah is the same way. Actually, it actually happens in Jeremiah's life where Israel is drug out of captivity. And, but Isaiah is just a little bit before Jeremiah, and he's prophesying to a different group of Israelites. Basically the same thing, though. Don't be idolaters. Repent from your sin. God desperately desires a relationship with you. Stop pursuing sin. And then Israel, you know, typical Israel is like, I don't really believe you. 
And then Israel, um, and then Babylon, God does what he says. I mean, he rises, raises up Babylon um, to, and he takes over um, all the Israelites and drags them all into captivity. And he, the only people he leaves are the peasants, the Israelite peasants. There's no way that they're going to, you know, stir up an army or anything like that. And so he just leaves the poorest of the poor Israelites and pretty much takes everyone else into captivity. And so between, and somewhere in between the 60 years between that happening, between Babylon dragging all the Israelites into captivity, and then Nehemiah, Persia takes over. And so we have a shift in world power. And so now Babylon is no longer the world power. Now Persia is, and then Rome is going to actually end up conquering Persia. And that's going to kind of intro us into the New Testament. So now we've got Persians and Persians are a little bit nicer. Maybe not nicer. Maybe they're just less meaner or something like that. They're, just, they're still, you know, I don't know if I'd qualify them as nice, but um, they're, they're not quite as hostile as Babylon is. And so, um, so we've got Persia that takes over and Persia's like, you know what? I'm going to let the Israelites return from captivity back to Jerusalem. And so when Babylon took the Israelites out of Jerusalem, Babylon completely destroyed—they left Jerusalem in ruin. I mean, this is the pinnacle city of Israel. This is the city where a lot of things happened. So to leave that in ruin, I mean, there was, no, there was no temple structure. There was no walls around Jerusalem, we're about to find out. And so it was just in ruin. The whole city was just in ruin. And so Persia's like, you know what? We're going to let the Israelites go back to Jerusalem if they want to. And so—but um, they don't just release all of Israel at the same time. So they're in Babylon, they're in captivity thousands of miles away, and they say, why don't we just release them in waves at a time instead of all at once? And the reason why is just basic economy. I mean, you don't want every, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people to up and leave there just to quit working in one location to move to a newer location to start working. And so that would do, I mean, that's a tough day in, you know, on Wall Street when all your workers quit and move somewhere. And so, um, like, well, instead of, instead of all at once, why don't we just send them in waves? And so now to Nehemiah, he is sitting in Susa, the capital, um, which is a wealthy, affluent city. It is a powerful city. It's like, I guess you could sit, it's almost a vacation type city. Um, it's kind of like a Maui, I guess, or something like that, if you want a modern day equivalent. Um, but there's a, it's a powerful, affluent, economically prosperous um, city. And he's got a great job. He's a cupbearer. I mean, he's not like a minister. He's just a cupbearer. And so he, and this is a pretty affluent job. He's not, and it's interesting that he, that he doesn't have like, he's not like a priest or a prophet. He's just a guy with a secular job. And let me just tell you, if you're in here and you're a Christian, you don't have a secular job. Everything becomes spiritual. Your workplace, become, God sanctifies that and says, this is where I placed you. Now, he's, now he sees his job as, you know, Nehemiah sees being a cupbearer as um, an asset for the kingdom, which is really interesting. And so um, he's not like clergy or anything like that. And so uh, Nehemiah is sitting in Susa, hearing about Jerusalem. And so he, we know that a couple of waves have come back to Jerusalem. So there's, there's enough for it to be a legitimate city right now. now. Now, I want you just to take your mind and put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes right now, because he sees and hears about a lot of people going back into Jerusalem. And so he's probably assuming that people there are, being, are building, the, building up the city again, that there's construction taking place, that there is temple life that's taking place, that there's organization in the city that's taking place, that um, there's sins that are being atoned for, that there's, that there's a renewed energy or a renewed desire to know God again. And so Nehemiah probably just assumes that that's happening. Thousands of people there, surely someone is taking the reins and organizing some things and helping the city. But this is what he sees. Verse three, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Um, In Joshua chapter 6, Moses just got done leading the Israelites out of captivity. He brings them to the promised land and he gets them right to Jericho. And then Moses dies and gives, Je- and gives Joshua the reins to take Jerusalem or to take the Israelites into Jericho, the promised land. And the first thing that he does is he has the Israelite army march around the walls of Jericho seven times. And on the seventh day, um, they had them blow their instruments and then the walls, fa- fa- or the walls fell down. Have you ever wondered why that was the strategy for God? Why that, was a stra- why that was such a big deal? It was a big deal because in Old Testament ancient history, having walls around your city was your primary mode of defense. They didn't have technology then. And so their primary way of defending themselves against foreign invasion was, was to have big walls built around their city. And so the first thing that Nehemiah hears about is trouble. Physical, they are physically in trouble. There is a chance that a foreign army could invade Jerusalem and take Israel back into captivity all over again. And so Nehemiah sees that and um, he sees trouble there. Physical trouble. They are in trouble. That something could happen to God's people that is physically harmful to them. And then the other thing that he sees is shame. He, he hears about deep shame. Now, what, what would happen in a city that would create deep shame? And in ancient history, the same thing. I mean, really, you're, you were defined by your gods. And if you, if you had no gods, I mean, literally, in the Old Testament, people went to war over stealing each other's gods. So if there's no gods and there's no temple structure going on and there's, there's ultimately no desire to know God, then there is a spiritual devoidness in the city. So Nehemiah sees not only physical trouble, but he sees a lack of God's presence in the city of Jerusalem. And so he sees those things. He sees that there could be a foreign invasion, and then he sees a a general absence of God's presence in the city. Now, I want to just, before we go on, if you're in the story right now, how would that make you feel? To see God's people physically in trouble, and then spiritually, just not pursuing. How'd that make you feel? How, do, how does it make you feel? Because it happens today too. When you look out, I mean, I went to a private Christian school in high school. And I graduated with a small class and I watched not everyone, but a major, a, a, some of the people in my class that I went to Bible school with, that I went to class with, that I went to chapel with, that I went to church with, that I did Christian retreats in, and then I watched them enter into college and almost immediately enter into a life of disobedience to God. Does it bother you when you see Christians entertaining the idea of walking away from God or just apathetic towards God, just passive, and so this is, um, this is Nehemiah's response. Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So almost immediately, his response to spiritual, to a lack of spirituality and pursuit of God and to really the, the, the effects of the fall is um, a lack of protection, just a physical lack of protection. His immediate response is deep anguish and it's prayer, fasting, and weeping over God's people. You want to know why I love Nehemiah? I mean, this, is, this, this goes against, our world screams individual, individualism in Christianity. It just screams it. 
And so, but Nehemiah is in Susa. He's got no problems at all in Susa. I mean, very not, not, anywhere, um, not anywhere compared to how Jerusalem is right now. I mean, he's affluent right now, wealthy. He's got all, I mean, he's got things, he's got stuff, but he personally identifies himself with God's people. So he is thousands of miles away in an affluent city, an economically prosperous city, a safe city, but he hears about the people of God and he aches for them. And where, I mean, where we scream, I mean, and at the end of the day, Christianity is not about, I mean, it's not only about you and I reconciling our relationship with God, but it's also about God reconciling a people together. And so you've got Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, as we preached on a while back, about God reconciling us to Jesus. But then you go on to Ephesians 2, and then the rest of the chapter, 22 through um, 11 through 22, and you've got God breaking down the wall of hostility that separates people from each other. And so now we've got a people that we're a part of. That it's not just about you and me as individuals, but we're part of a people. So that when you hurt for things, I hurt not only for you, but I hurt with you. And so that when the people in your home group go through trials and situations, you're you're not just hurting for people and feeling sorry for people, but you hurt with them because we identify each other as part of the same family. And that's a great thing. That's a really cool thing. Like in this room right now, we've got people that represent different races, different backgrounds, different, I mean, there are poor people here, wealthy people here, all coming together because there's, we have something in common. That's the gospel. And so when your people rejoice over something, that's, um, something that happened that's good, then we rejoice with them. And when they walk through struggles and trials, we walk through those things with them. That's part of being the church. And so Nehemiah has this great concept of the church because he personally identifies himself, even though he's not even around them. And it's not like immediate family members. It's like people that he probably doesn't even know. And so this is really interesting, really convicting, because this is exactly, this is exactly how the gospel creates a people group and a body of believers. And, you, and he pray, and this is another, he, he's praying to God. Like his default, his default reaction is not to try and fix it. It's not to go, okay, well, how do I have to solve this problem? But he prays to God. We all pray to something in here. If you're, if you're breathing, you pray to something. I heard a commentator said that you pray as your face is set, either to Babylon or to Jerusalem. If it's to Babylon, you're praying towards, you're confident in and um, you're hoping in things that are worldly. So you pray to those things. Maybe not literally pray, but you, that's the attitude of your heart. It's the disposition of your heart. But Nehemiah's face is set to Jerusalem, set to God, set to godly things. And so his disposition is, I need God in this. He understands his need for God. And so let's get into the prayer. And there are, there are four parts to the prayer. I'm only going to do three, um, but let's look at uh, verse five. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. So the first thing that he does is he has, he looks up in dependence into God. So, so when he sees an obstacle, sees a situation, a trialing situation ahead of him, the, the, the disposition of his heart is to first look upward to God. 
That's the first thing he does. And the prayer that he prays, O Lord God of heaven. I mean, this is a really common prayer. This is exactly what Jesus prayed in the New Testament when the disciples were like, how do we pray? The first thing he says is, our Father who art in heaven. And what they're saying, what what Nehemiah is acknowledging about, these are some great truths about God, especially if you're going through trials. But what he's saying about God is that God is, he is not bound by space and time. And he's not tainted by the the corruption of sin. And he's not um, surprised when things happen. He's not, he doesn't, you know, he, it's not that he's surprised when circumstances work out a situation, but he is over and above and ruling over everything from the beginning of time to the end of time. There's a passage in Hebrews that says that God is through time. So he actually even, not only does he know what the future holds, he's actually already in the future, which is really, really confusing. But um, this is God who is over and above everything. And so Nehemiah has a problem, and it looks like an overwhelming situation. I mean, it looks like this is a big deal. I mean, Jerusalem is in trouble. They're physically broken. They're spiritually broken, and they're thousands of miles away from me. And so he sees, we've got Nehemiah looking at two cities, and they might seem really distant, but when you begin to look up at a God who holds everything in the outstretching of his hand, then problems are put in light of the eternal perspective, the proper perspective. And so looking at a big God who's over and above everything is a deep comfort for Nehemiah, who's got a really big problem in front of him. And so we've got verses all over the Bible that confirm this, like Psalms 115.3 says that God is in the heavens and he does all that pleases him. And Isaiah 40.12 says that if you take all the water that ever exists and you, and you put it in your palm, that's how, that's how God holds the waters of the, of the world, just like a little you know, puddle in his palm. And so Nehemiah sees this God that is over and above all things. No matter how big the problem is, no matter how trialing the situation, no matter how stressful the situation, God is right there over and above ruling over everything. But the, it doesn't just end there for Nehemiah. Like he, he, we also see a God who's not just over and above everything. That's not just, that doesn't just wheel up the clock and kind of lets things go um, from the beginning of creation and he just kind of sits over and looks at everything. That's not, prim- that's not only what God is, but he's also actively in the midst of everything. Like a loving creator, he's actively in the midst of everything. And so like you wouldn't plant a garden and then just leave it alone and hope that it grows itself and just hope, man, I hope the garden grows well, but you would be involved in growing the garden and helping the garden grow. And this is exactly how God relates to his creation. So he's not absent or distant, but even in Nehemiah's situation, he's right there in the midst of all things. But then it goes one step further, that he's not just over and above all things and in the midst of all things, but that he lovingly cares about his people's problems and situations. That he lovingly cares about. He makes a covenant not of wrath or of justice, but of love with his people. And for those of you who are going through difficult seasons— One of the most comforting truths is that God lovingly is concerned for your— He's not distant and over those things, but he's in the midst of those things. And so I I can look at just this past year for me, like I can look at from literally last August to now, this August, and— it, it has been a trialing year for me. Now, I don't know that I've had like a whole lot of trials compared to some of your trials. Like, I don't know where I fall, um, but it, there's definitely been times where um, relationally, relationships have just broken down, where I have walked through some, uh, just some really thick, hurtful relationships. 
And then there's been times where, you know, money has gotten tight this year. It's gotten tight. It's tight for a lot of us in here. And, and then there's some of you in here who've walked through divorce and you're walking through family issues and you're walking through all kinds, I mean, there's pain everywhere. And there, you know, there are varying degrees of pain, but there's almost never a season in life where there, you are pain-free. There's pain everywhere. And one of the most comforting truths is that God is not only over and above all those things, but that he is lovingly concerned for all of those things. And that he actually has allowed you to walk through the situations that you're going through because he wants you to be more obedient to him and he wants for your love to be more in and directed towards him. That's what I see in Nehemiah. I see a God that cares about the obedience of his children and cares about the love of his children. And that God might desire a relationship with you and God might want to know you in a deeper way so much that he actually allows situations to go bad for a while. That's a really comforting truth in the middle of maybe some difficult situations. That God might want to take your hands off of the things that you so easily cling to so that you can remove them and ultimately cling to him. And if that means hard times, if that means big obstacles, big trials, then that's God's, maybe his grace and gift to you and to us. And so Nehemiah has this overwhelming obstacle that just seems overwhelming. And then he prays to a God that's big and over everything, that's in the midst of everything, and that's lovingly concerned for his people. So let's look at, um, let's keep reading here. Let's go verse six. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel and your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Um, so the next part of the prayer is Nehemiah looks inward at sin. So we've got Nehemiah looking upward in dependence and now Nehemiah looking inward at sin. And um, anytime, anywhere in scripture where anyone has any remote sense of the reality and the presence of God, any, anytime anyone just sees a glimpse of God, anytime anyone sees or even thinks about or meditates on the glory and holiness of God, almost instinctively, their natural reaction is they begin to view themselves as sinful people. So when you take your life and when you measure even your righteous deeds and put them up against a holy God, the natural response is we are broken and sinful people. And so even in Isaiah 6, he gets a glimmer of God's robe in his, in his temple. And his natural response is, woe is me, I am a sinner, I am a man of unclean lips. So for Nehemiah, but listen to me, here's the thing with, with sin. Sin is not primarily defined by breaking, breaking the rules of God. It's not primarily legal. There is an aspect of sin that is primarily, that does break rules of God, but primarily, and for Nehemiah, for sin for him doesn't just mean breaking rules, doesn't just mean breaking the rules of God, but it actually shrinks his capacity to know God. It's relational. That sin for Nehemiah is seen not just as breaking these rules that God kind of puts on us, but as actually creating an obstacle to knowing him more. 
And so this is why we want obedience. It's because obedience, being obedient to what God has called us to be, it enlarges our hearts and grows our capacity to know God. And so if, if you're willingly sinning and you're in the process of sinning, then what that does is it's not just primarily about you doing wrong things, but you're actually nullifying and weakening the, the reality of knowing God better. That's what sin does for us, is it shrinks our capacity to know God This is why we're called to be holy and to live obediently primarily. It's not simply so that we can be obedient to rules, but it's so we can know God better. And so my hope for you and my hope for me when it comes to us addressing sin is that we would have a passion to pursue God and to, and to repent of sin, not because sin is necessarily wrong, although it is, but because it's weakening our desire for God and our ability to know God. So that's why we want to be obedient to him so we can know him more. And so Nehemiah sees this and he, what I love about it is he doesn't just see his own sin but he looks out and it, he is broken over the sin of God's people as well. So that when you watch people that claim to know Christ entertain the idea or walk in sin, that it doesn't just, I mean, it's not just a passive, I'm okay with them doing that, but it is a deep desire to see that person repent so that that person can know God. Because when you experience God and you experience knowing God for yourself, you can't just watch people ruin that and not feel broken over that. I mean, that stirs a desire for people to repent to know God. And so me, the experience you have personally is going to affect how broken you are over the people around you. And so Nehemiah, this is, another, this is just another thing about him that is so mind-boggling to me that he, he looks out and he's not just broken over his sin, he's not just confessing his sin, but he's broken over the sins of God's people. There is a deep desire for, God, for him to see God's people be obedient to God. And that's a really cool thing, that a person and someone has a deep desire for others around them to grow in their obedience as well. And so we've got Nehemiah addressing sin and confessing sin. And then um, if, you, if you look at verse 10, we'll, we'll skip 8 through. Basically in 8 through, um, 8 through 10, he, he looks back on what God has done, which is, a really good, which is a really good habit. I mean, if you're walking through a difficult situation in life, one of the coolest things to do is to think about how God has brought you from other difficult situations to where you are now. That's encouraging. And so um, I didn't think I'd covered it, but I went ahead and covered it for you. There you go. Verse 10, it says, They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the, and, um, who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Um, so now Nehemiah, looks, he looks upward in dependence, and then he looks inward at sin, and then he looks backwards and remembers some things, and now he looks outward at what his job is in the world. So he begins to pray for success and he begins to start thinking through exactly what his role is in the realm, in his, where, where he is in life. And so it's just, it's just, I mean, the logic of this is, is easy. It's if we know God and value the gospel, therefore we're broken over the things of the world, therefore we're active agents in the world. And so that there is an, an outward focus that you're not just here 
to come to church, but that, you're, that God places you and puts you in positions and in work environments and in situations. And he says, be ministers and active agents for my kingdom. And so I'll tell you where the motive for this is. Um, like if you just, if you think about Genesis chapter one, uh, where God creates the world and creates everything perfect. And the greatest thing about creation, like the absolute greatest thing about Genesis chapter one and two is not the blessings of creation, but it's the fact that Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God. That is the best. That's the greatest thing about the creation. It is God. And so we've got creation and um, we've got Adam and Eve sitting in the garden in perfect fellowship and communion with God, which by the way, that's also going to be the greatest thing about heaven. It's not going to be the blessings of heaven. It's going to be the fact that we have a re- just a completely restored relationship with God. That is going to be the greatest thing about heaven, not the blessings. Those are secondary. Your greatest need is not to have the blessings from God, but to have God himself. And so we've got the fall in chapter three. We've got Eve eating the fruit and Adam watching it. And ultimately it was Adam's fault. And so we've got for the first time sin entering into the world. And then from, I mean, literally, I mean, <laughs> this is so crazy. But after Genesis three, sin corrupts the world so quickly. I mean, it is so quick. In chapter four, we've got Cain killing his brother Abel out of jealousy, just completely murdering his brother. And then if you just go to chapter six, we've got, because of increasing corruption in the world, God has to flood the entire, worth, the entire world except for one family. And so the world gets really, really corrupt very, very quickly. And so then if you go to chapter 11, probably the single, this is in our human history, this might be the single dumbest thing that we've ever done. We tried to build a tower to get to God. And that is just so dumb. I don't know how else to say that. And so we've got the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, I believe. And so it's a bunch of people that come together and say, you know what? We, we should be God. We, we're people. And so we should be where God is. So why don't we come together and pull all of our resource together and start building a really big tower so that way we can get to God. And so God looks down and says, this is so stupid that I'm going to give all of y'all ang- different languages and this is just going to kill the whole thing for you. And so he does that. And now we get different languages. But we've got sin. We've got man trying to become God. And then we've got man pursuing the creation instead of the creator. And then from Genesis chapter 11, it just gets more progressive and more progressive and more progressive. And the the effects of sin and the curse of sin has gone out into the world and the world becomes extremely broken. And even God's people, I mean, even the Israelites all in the Old Testament are constantly turning their back from God and pursuing other things other than God. And so this happens all over the Bible. And so the question question is, who is going to reverse this curse? Who is going to take the curse of sin and reverse it? And so flip over to Isaiah 53 for us. Now just just listen to these verses here. Now listen, if there... I don't, I don't care, honestly. Like I, could, I, I care that you see Jesus correctly and that we love Jesus for who he is. Like I care about that. I care about that for me and I care about that for you. And I care about that for us as a church body that we see and understand Jesus because what these verses are about to reveal is that Jesus Christ sitting in heaven, watching sin corrupt and defile the world, watching his people 
turn his back on him. We're about to see Jesus come out of heaven, step into earth, and begin to reconcile things. And he, did, he is not obligated to do anything. It's one of the greatest truths about Jesus. He, does, he is not obligated to fix anything. He's not bound by your righteousness. He doesn't owe us anything, but he sits in heaven and feels this brokenness and looks down at a world that is constantly rebelling at him. And he goes, okay, I am going to fix this. And there's a primary, there, are primarily, there are some primary motives that cause Jesus to do this. And so I want to talk about how he does this first, but then get into why he does this. Because it's why he does this that's really, really interesting. And so look at verse 4 here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And so how Jesus reverses this curse is he comes down out of heaven and he carries on him the sins of everyone who were to believe in him so that he gets on the cross. I mean, here's what's happening in your life right now. Every time you sin, there's gotta be a punishment for sin. There's gotta be. And so every time we sin, we're just storing up wrath for ourselves. And so what happens is we're sinning against God. People sin against God. There's sin in the world. And, and there's just, there's wrath that has to be let out because sin has to be punished. Because God just can't let everyone into heaven because he's righteous and he's a judge and he's just. And so he's got he's to be a just God. And so how does Jesus reverse this curse and allow people to walk in fellowship with him? And the answer to that question is he comes down out of heaven, which is mind-boggling in itself that Christ the creator comes down into heaven that's, or comes down into earth that's defiled by sin. And then he goes to the cross and, and what happens on the cross, it's more than just physical abuse. Like it's not just him being tortured by Romans, although I don't want to negate that, but it's God removing the wrath of people, of you and I, for our sins that we commit. It's him taking the wrath off of us and removing it and funneling it onto his son. And then he looks at us as righteous people. So he actually gives us the righteousness of Christ. And it has nothing to do with you and I. It has nothing to do because we're good or because we inherited that or he owed that to us. But that's how, we're re- that's how the curse gets reversed is we're reconciled to God because the wrath that was supposed to go to you and I is removed off of us and funneled onto Jesus. And the only person that never deserved to die and never deserved one ounce of God's wrath to be let out on him absorbed the wrath of God in ways that you and I cannot even imagine. And that is the gospel. And so listen to, listen to why he did this though. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him He has put to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. 
Jesus's, one of Jesus's motives, I think there were a couple, but one of his motives for coming down and doing this is because he was in anguish over how the fall has affected the world, over how it's affected his relationship with his people. And listen, God did not save you and I to just go to heaven but he actually saves us and gives us a new heart and gives us a new um, desire and actually gives us a little piece of this brokenness that he feels for the world. He actually gives us a piece of this kind of anguish over the world so that now God call, even if you fast forward to 2010 in Midlothian, Texas, God has saved people and has given them a heart that is unsatisfied and discontent with how the world is right now. And then he puts us in our locations and in our environments and in our situations and says, go into your places and your situations and be actively involved in reconciling the world back to God. That is a call on your life. So Nehemiah, he's, I mean, at the end of the day, there's no such thing as a great man of faith. I mean, you get Hebrews chapter 11 and there's a hall of faith, but there's really no, it's just God using Nehemiah, taking a weak, sinful person and radically saving him by the gospel, calling him, giving him vision, giving him a desire, giving him new desires that break over the world and then giving him, an, uh, and giving him situations to, to be a person that reconciles the world back to God. And so there's, at the end of the day, Nehemiah is a picture of what it means to be saved by the gospel. He's just a person who's a cupbearer. He's just, he works at a secular job and he sees this overarching problem in the world and with God's people and he begins to have this overwhelming burden for God's people and then he begins to act on it. Because being broken over something, it never results in just passivity. Like you can't just be broken over something and remain idle. But that God calls broken people over the world and puts them in places and in locations and says, be ministers for my name. And so you're, you and I are called to do this. And so I want to I close just with a couple of, um, to bring all that that's like way up here down to, you know, where we are. And so um, like the first thing that I would say is essential to all of this, like this might have just gone right over our heads and, and you've got to first have a personal brokenness for your own sin or you're never going to feel broken over the world like God has called us to be. And so if you're, if you're in, in your heart and in your life right now, if there is something inside of your heart that you have neglected, if there's sin in there that is unrepentant of, what, what you're doing is ultimately you are losing your ability to know God like you could. You're shrinking your capacity to know God and you're created to know God. You're primarily created to know God. And so, but if there's no brokenness over personal sin, there's definitely not going to be any brokenness for the sins of God's people and for the sins of lost people and over God's world. If there's nothing inside of us that's broken over our own personal sins, then there's really not going to be a whole lot of brokenness for anyone else. And listen, I don't just want for me and you to stop sinning because we're supposed to, but we want, we want God. And so the first thing is, are you broken over your sin? And I hope that the light of God's word would shine and even to the dark places in your heart because it's really easy to push sin aside to where it doesn't, and you might not actually see the effects of sin, like a tangible effect. But if it's there, I know that it's shrinking your capacity to know the Father. 
the God who really desires to know you. And so the second thing is um, that you would see the world around you as God sees it, and then for you to proactively engage the world as ministers of reconciliation. And so I'll give you just a quick Stonegate example, and I don't know, I don't even know all the details of this, but this is such a great example. There, is a, there was a home group, um, I think in June, um, that, that got to know a family who had a, a little girl with a disease, and so they, they began, and the disease is part of the fall. And so there's something that happened. I don't even really know who headed it up, but, but a, a group of people got together and said, how can we bless this family? And how can we be ministers of reconciliation that push back the, the things that are fallen in the world? And one of those things is disease. Disease is never part of God's creation. It's a result of the fall. And so we were able to raise um, the 4th of July weekend um, quite a bit of money for a family that had a lot of offsetting medical costs. And, and so this is one of the ways where we can breathe hope into a world that desperately needs it. That was a great example. And that was not a church-sanctioned thing. That was just people that look into God's world and see brokenness and are broken by the results of the fall. And even this morning, man, I was trying to get, you know, there's a difference in like, like writing a sermon and then like really feeling what you've just prepared. Like there's a, there's a big difference there. And so like it's, it's hard, you know, it's the easy part is to come up with an outline or whatever, but the hard part is to really feel it, you know? And so I'm trying this morning, early this morning at Starbucks, I was just praying that God would, would allow me to feel what I'm, I'm talking on, that I would feel broken over this world. And almost instantly, like while I'm trying to put the, the scriptures in my mind and the truths in my mind to let them sink in, um, a lady walks in and she's an ex-coworker of mine from Navarro. And um, I thought this lady was a Christian, like we'd had conversations about, I mean, she just looked like a Christian. I never really confirmed that or not. <laughs> However it is that a Christian looks, I don't know. So I just thought she was one. And she walks in and she was all dressed up and I thought she was going to go to church this morning. And she was like, man, I'm, I'm on my way to the Buddhist temple. Lost people are all around us. And it's so easy for me and probably for all of us to become so insulated with other Christians that we forget that there is a world who is dying to know God, whether they believe that or not, who is searching and crying out and calling out. And so I asked her what she thinks about Jesus, and she was so off the radar. She, I mean, she had some things happen, and this was, this morning, this was 7.30 this morning. And she wasn't even, she, had, she wanted nothing to do with the gospel. And I worked at Navarro for seven months and didn't even know that. So I begin to feel the sermon coming into my heart, you know, <laughs> because there are lost people all around us and there is a broken world out there and God calls Christians to go out there and to bring hope and to bring life to the neighborhoods, to the workplaces, to the schools, to the families in hopes that people might come to experience and know God for themselves. So why don't you have a lost person over for dinner soon? There's a lost family that just moved right across my apartment. And I don't want to, ch- I, I, I confirmed it with them, but I do know that they're lost. I, I first saw them and I was like, probably. But then I confirmed it. <laughs> I'm not trying to say, I'm not going to say why I thought that because I don't want to offend anybody. But you know, you get those people, you're like, probably doesn't know Jesus. And so, but I've been telling Trisha, we're going to have them over and we haven't yet, but we want to. So why don't you do the same? Why don't we be people in our neighborhoods that find and, and attract lost people in and invite lost people into our homes in hopes that they might know God? Be a great place to start.
Last, um, one more, two more things to personally identify yourself with God's people, that in your home groups that you would feel each other's needs and that you would walk with each other. That's a great, I mean, we're not individuals here, but we're a group and a family together. And listen, this, this is why I hate unnecessary church conflict. It's out of control, man, how people can divide and how there's no, there's no ability or no desire to extend forgiveness or grace. There's no ability to say, I'm sorry. Listen, I'll tell you in advance, I am sorry for everything that I'm going to do wrong and for everything that I've already done that's wrong. <laughs> I mean, if there's anyone in here that needs grace, I know it's probably me that needs forgiveness and needs, listen, I told someone the other day, the less I talk and the more I listen, everybody wins here. That's a good thing. Everybody wins here. The less I talk, the more I talk, I'm like, that's a dumb idea. And so I'm like, yeah, you're right. And so, but that we would be people that extend forgiveness and grace to each other. I mean, that's part of being in the same, that's part of identifying ourselves with each other. And then lastly, um, and I'll end with this one, to have a hope-filled present reality because of our firmly fixed future reality. And in, even in Nehemiah, I mean, literally, just a, I'm almost done, just a couple of generations before, I mean, they tried to rebuild the wall and everyone got arrested for it. And there's obstacles in every turn of the page in Nehemiah, but he sees and, and he overcomes obstacles and he's constantly going through obstacles. And because he sees a future reality that's coming, so even in the midst of your deepest pain and your deepest hurt, just know that one day there is going to be a God who breaks open the skies and who restores everything and all of our pain and all of our suffering is going to cease in that moment. So if there's any courage or any um, effort or any hope that should fill us in our present reality, it's just the fact that one day we're going to be home. That this world is not our home, but we're going to be home someday. And so this is such a great thing because so many of us go through, ah, there's pain everywhere. So what, what is the hope that fills us? What's the present day reality hope that fills us? It's the future, it's the firmly fixed future reality that is absolutely coming for Christians who believe in Christ, where one day we will be restored completely with our creator in a complete fellowship with him. And that is a great piece of the gospel. And so let me, um, let me just end by, by reading this quote. Listening to eternity helps us know how to live in the here and now. We cannot understand what is truly important or grasp the reality of what we face in this life or know what to do about it until we see life from a perspective of eternity. A biblical view of eternity brings the Christian genuine hope in any situation and hope produces insight and courage. The Bible invites us to listen in and learn so that in this broken world of bitter hurt and disappointment, we may find hope in the gospel. Let's pray together. God, I pray, um, I thank you that your word does not return void. And I, I just pray that some of this lands on um, fertile soil and on hearts that... Um, are just fertile. And God, I pray for our people here that um, we would deeply desire you above all things. And God, that we would know that knowing you and walking with you and having fellowship with you is our greatest joy on earth and it is what we're created to do and to be. And so I pray that we would desire to know you in a deeper way and to fellowship you and, and to just to have a greater sense of your reality in our worlds. 
And God, I pray for, for us as we go back into our homes and our neighborhoods and our work environments and our families, that we would be, that we would, our eyes would be open to ministry opportunities all over the place. Because the world is full of lost people. Our world here is full of people that are crying out. It's full of even Christians that are struggling. So I pray that our hearts and our minds would be um, open to ministry opportunities that come our way. And God, mostly I pray that your name would be glorified in our lives and that you would be made famous and that you would be um, so um, just desirable to us as the God who sits above all things, who reigns and rules over all things and who's actively working in the midst of all things for your good and for his glory. So help us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.